Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Jesse Stevens. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, and treaty was never made in Australia. Jessie Stevens is a creator and writer at Mamma Mia. She's the host of the podcasts Mamma Mia Out Loud and True Crime Conversations. Today, she's joining us to discuss her new book, Heartsick. Heartsick weaves together three stories of love and loss. Claire has returned from London only to realise something is wrong with her partner Maggie. Patrick is a lonely uni student until he meets Caitlin, but does she feel as connected as he does? Anna is happily married with three children, and then one night she falls in love with someone else. Today's conversation is presented by 2SER producer Brianna Devlin. So join me as we discover Jesse Stevens' Heartsick. Hi everyone, my name is Brianna Devlin and I'm bringing you my wonderful chat with Jessie Stevens with her debut novel Heartsick. It's about three stories of heartbreak and how they can upend a life and impact you in many different ways. Here's part one of my chat with Jessie Stevens about Heartsick. I just want to first begin by saying a massive congratulations. How does it feel to have it all bound in one single copy? It feels pretty amazing to see it on the bookshelf next to authors that I've admired for such a long time, Mm -hmm. like Jane Harper and Trent Dalton and Rick Morton and people I've learned so much from. It feels ridiculous that my name would be among those, but it's pretty surreal. I think it'll hit me pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And speaking of Trent Dalton and Jane Harper, they're part of the many who have endorsed this book. So how does it feel to have them endorsing the book and they got get privy and have a little read of it? Yeah. Because I understand you've interviewed a fair few of them for your book club yes. podcast as well. Yes, I have. So I interviewed them for a book club podcast that I was doing and I asked them a lot about writing and the process of writing and they were so generous with their advice. I give anyone who wants to write a book or who is interested in in writing should listen to those masters explain how it's done. But I, you know, have followed their careers so, so closely and sent out my book to them thinking, you know, they're pretty bloody busy people. They've got a lot going on. I'm sure they won't read it, but they did read it and they endorsed it. And I was very, very shocked because when I, I think anyone, when they write and they produce a manuscript, there's a thousand things you'd want to change and you're not necessarily entirely happy with the final product. But that was the first moment that I sort of went, okay, maybe this isn't terrible. Maybe there's something in it. And since then, it's been very exciting. Mm. Just to tap onto that and something you also mentioned in your Mamma Mia Out Loud launch last night. I'm a fellow Out Louder, so it was very exciting (laughs) sitting at home in my pyjamas going, (laughs) I'm sure everybody was the same way. I found it really interesting when you said, when you thought about this idea for your book, that not a lot of people understood it until it was in a copy like that. And Mia and Holly mentioned, maybe because it was a bit more of a challenging sort of abstract kind of topic. What else do you think maybe people didn't fully wrap their head around it until it was the way it is now? It's funny because I think all year I would try and explain it to someone like you're at a function or you're at someone's birthday and they ask you what you're doing and you're like, oh, I'm writing a book. And you give them the synopsis 
And no book ever sounds good. If you really think about it, if I were to explain to you what Where the Crawdads Sing is about, you'd go, that sounds like a terrible book, yet it's one of the best books ever written. So every time I'd go to explain it, you could just see their eyes be like, ooh, I... I don't get it. So it's three people, but they're real people, but it's written like a novel, so it's kind of meant to be a narrative. So are you in it? Is is it interviews? Is it short stories? And it's none of those things. And so I would keep using things going, it's sort of like three women and, and normal people, and they hadn't read those books. So I was like, okay, I just give up. And it felt like once you had the bound copy and you could hand it to people... It's like they finally went, oh, I understand your idea now. In which case, it's also too late to change it. So if it's a terrible idea, then that's terrifying. But I feel a little vindicated now that I think people finally get what I was seeing in my head for a year now in print. What were you using to pitch the ideas at the time? I think... I was talking about it being relatable and I actually thought when I pitched it that it would be specifically for people who were currently heartbroken. What I didn't expect was that it would be for literally everyone. And I was told that after writing it, that in fact this was sort of more than relatable because people who have had experiences 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago were picking it up and being reminded of particular moments, which I hadn't considered that it would it would resonate that much. And I knew that heartbreak was a thing. I didn't realise that just about every person in the world has experienced it to an extent. That's shocked me. What other assumptions did you have when you were creating the book? I had a few assumptions about heartbreak and that we don't fully get over it and that it just morphs into different things and haunts current relationships. But I certainly didn't expect to find myself and my own experiences reflected in those three subjects so much. And Anna in the book, she's a few years down the line. Claire is a few years down the line and both of them are bearing those wounds as freshly as the day after it happened. And I probably didn't expect to find that. Mm -hmm. And I think just to get onto that idea, when I was looking through your byline at Mamma Mia, it's quite extensive. You cover topics like, you know, your recaps are very famous for Maths Bachelor, (laughs) reality TV, you've got crime, you've got fashion, you've dabbled a little bit into dating in terms of the dating lingo that is always changing and coming and going. But interestingly, I came across one of your bylines from 2016. Yeah. And it says it might not seem like it, but there is beauty in heartbreak. I don't know if you remember writing that story, but it's interesting. Your first sentence is, I have wanted to write about heartbreaks for a long time. Why do you think you've wanted to write about it so long? And in hindsight, it's come together in a book like this. I think because it's a pain that I have felt more acutely than just about any other pain in my life. And when you lose someone in your life, like as in, you know, a death and you go to a funeral and you mourn someone, it feels very culturally recognised and like everyone understands what you're going through. But heartbreak, every time it happened, you get a, I got a shock of just like, this is the most shockingly horrible thing that's ever happened. And I don't feel like anyone can see it or is acknowledging it. And it was this feeling of why isn't anyone properly talking about this brand of grief? And so there's something about writing about and talking about the unsaid that's very cathartic. And I reckon that's why in my head it was it was there for so many years, from little instances in primary school of rejection to, you know, those moments of rejection as a teenager to thinking you're in love and having those relationships fall apart in my 20s. There were so many instances that were leading me to write this book, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think everyone from when 
when I read it, people think you get over heartbreak to a certain point. And when I was reading it, and I'm sure many people will too, that you, I reflected on pains that I had in the past and some little bits that haven't gone away that sort of stick with you as much as you think they're not important anymore, they're mm-hmm. non-existent. At the same time, there are some things that stick with you. And you mentioned that idea of it being a ritual as well for people who have felt that heartbreak. And I found that really interesting because sometimes I think if you can't get it, not that if you can't get over heartbreak, that's a bit concerning, but you think time moves on, life moves on and things like that. But there are things that stick with you. And I think one point I found really interesting was, and I'm going to divulge a little bit, when you mentioned that you interviewed someone who was in their 60s and they were still so caught up in that moment and everything felt so present for when his heart got broken when he was a teenager. Mm. And I found that really interesting. And he was, you know, happily moved on, married to someone for so many decades. And what other parts could you see the book being a ritual for? Yeah, definitely. I think we do need some sort of ritual designed for when heartbreak happens and we don't really have a guidebook and this definitely isn't a guidebook but we don't really know what to do next and that's why I think people do really strange things like they cut their hair or they put everything into a box. I had a friend who threw out a $500 bracelet that someone gave her I was like sell it why would you throw it out we do do very very odd things and I think it is us trying to clutch it at some sort of ritual and that man never knew what to do with that pain so he buried it and buried it and that was a discovery for me that just because you're in a happy functional relationship doesn't mean you're not still bearing those scars of heartbreak they very much still exist and I think we need permission to talk about that and own that because it makes us very human and very vulnerable which is a beautiful thing it just means that you've loved before I suppose. Mm. Interesting that you mentioned the jewellery in your article you wrote I have friends who have in a fit of rage thrown out $400 pieces of jewellery book a flight to the other side of the world or teed up mid-presentation at work these are sane smart rational level-headed people there are a few things in life other than death which elicit such an intense emotional response it's equal parts tragic fascinating and bizarrely beautiful and you went on to say there is grace in allowing oneself to be completely vulnerable as you said and caring about someone so deeply that when they disappear it feels as though your entire life has fallen apart Mm. I think one thing I find quite interesting the narrative you were saying last night's launch that you were being told I guess within those times about heartbreak the whole sex in the city and moving on and being empowered when I also think about what I was looking at when I was going through a heartbreak there were sort of how-tos to not bounce back but to move forward after x amount of days try and go outside or see different people and that it doesn't it just doesn't work Mm. and I think we also have consumed this 30 second montage that's in Sex and the City that's on television, that's in movies, that what we'll do is cut our hair and we'll look really good and then um, we'll lose 10 kilos and then we'll get a new job and we'll reinvent ourselves and then they'll want us back which Mm. is a really sick way of thinking for a a myriad of reasons. But it doesn't serve us well. And again, I think that's us grasping at an attempt of ritual, but life isn't Sex and the City and this Mm. idea that it's cute or feminine or, you know, a little bit sad, but get over it, I don't think is doing it justice because you don't have to do much research to see that when you look at mental illness, when you look at depression, there are so many people who fall into serious cases and phases of depression after heartbreak because of what it does to our sense of self, to our self-esteem. And that's something that needs to be addressed as well and, and spoken about more openly. Have you noticed the narrative over time changing as you were writing the book? Um, I don't think so. I think that 
still, especially with things like Instagram, which is such a sanitized version of reality, but you're getting those inspirational quotes, you're getting people wanting to speed other people's recovery up, running out of patience after a week or two, which of course I understand. But I hope that this will be a step towards us creating space for having deeper connecting conversations about the fact that this isn't something you get over. We don't expect if we were to lose a friend or lose a partner or lose a mum or a dad or a grandparent, you don't expect someone to ever really get over that. And I'm not saying that heartbreak is necessarily equivalent to death, but it's a kind of death and we just don't respect it. And I think that's part of why we're not getting over it and we're not addressing it properly because we're just rejecting how much it truly hurts. In an Instagram story when you were teasing the book, people were asking questions because you do have a true crime podcast. You do love to dabble in crime stories. People were asking, why the topic of heartbreak? I'm surprised you didn't do a crime story. And one thing I found quite interesting in your response to that, you were saying you wanted a book that took this kind of grief more seriously. Can you just explain that a little bit further? Yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of books in this genre have a very neat ending and are often written from the perspective of someone who then has their happy ending, which is almost always in a committed monogamous relationship. And that's how they get over the heartbreak is by jumping into something else. And I didn't like that idea that it was looking back at something retrospectively and it wasn't reflecting the actual pain of it. And it was people inserting wisdom and insights into time heals all wounds and you're better off, you'll be glad that that ended because you'll end up with someone better. And I know that they're just surviving mechanisms and and sometimes they're very true. But I did find that, yeah, even with my partner, I I can feel that and, and look back and go, oh, I'm grateful for a lot of those heartbreak, I suppose. But I didn't feel like I wanted that. What I wanted were people who were still in the midst of it and still in the muck and could speak more so to the pain of that transition rather than having a neat ending. And that's the thing about nonfiction is that you don't get to choose the ending. They do. And it's always going to be a little bit messy and you can't quite tie it up in a neat bow. And that's why I didn't want this to be, I didn't want the cover to be pink. I didn't want this to be pigeonholed as a kind of silly little chick lit book that's about a sad moment you have when a boy is mean to you. That's not what it's about. It's about something much, much more serious. Yeah, definitely. And I guess when you think about in terms of popular culture as well, sort of movies that deal with heartbreak, you've got Bridget Jones and things like that that sort of make it quite a linear Mm. sort of approach. And their lives look quite good. Like they mm. they have their own apartments. It's fun. They have pizza. They like have their girlfriends. They go out and have drinks. No one can relate with that. That's not anyone's experience. And it also doesn't help. So I wanted people to be able to see a different reality of what it actually looks like in the wake of having your heart broken. I just want to get you to explain this. So the book is sharing many of the details we're often too afraid to say out loud. What do you think those details are and why would be be afraid to say them? I think it's really embarrassing to say that you've been dumped or rejected by someone because you think it's a reflection on you. I reckon that's the first thing, that often when you speak to someone afterwards, people will say it was mutual or that they had some say in it when they didn't. So that's one thing that people are afraid to say out loud. I don't think we like saying that we cried ourselves to sleep, that we've been out of a relationship for 12 months and we're still not okay, that we're in a relationship or we're seeing someone but we're actually still pining for someone else. 
there is what we perceive to be quite real ugliness in what it does to us in terms of jealousy and ego and self-hatred that isn't very pretty to talk about. It's a lot cooler to talk about all the people that love you and how maybe you were the one that left them, but that's not the truth. So I wanted to sort of share the truths of that experience. Mm. I guess also going back to what we mentioned in regards to Instagram, that whole idea of saying, you know, I've moved on, i bounced back, it, I don't need them anymore. Yeah. Exactly. And we love to post that picture. But that picture is for one person and it's usually for the person that dumped us. Um, and we've all posted that picture and Instagram is full of it. And I think being honest about that is can be a bit funny. We've all gone through that phase of seeing if someone's checked our yep. social media or things like that. And just going into the three people, so we have Anna, Patrick and Claire. How did you come across them? So I did a call out to try and find these very specific subjects and I knew what I wanted. I knew what themes I wanted to touch on. So I knew infidelity was something I was interested in. I knew I wanted a male and I knew that I wanted a same-sex relationship. And so with all of that in mind, I went searching and came across a number of stories and spoke to a lot of people. But these were the three that stuck out to me because because the narrative went on these incredible tangents and took me down rabbit holes that I thought were kind of rich enough to explore in narrative nonfiction. I didn't want sort of two people meet, they fall in love, they break up, that's it. Like that's kind of very one note. Whereas this was way more complicated and who was right and who was wrong was complicated and it was the part mental illness can play and the part that maybe growing up together and then going in two different directions can play. So I knew what stories I wanted and then I looked in the Out Louders community. I did a bunch of call-outs through various platforms and ended up with these three and then just interviewed them over the course of of that nine months or so and wrote up their stories. Mm -hmm. What was it like interviewing them throughout lockdown? Were they a bit more accessible in terms of you able to get in contact with them a bit more and dabble into little bits? I want to get actually into because there were some bits that were quite confronting and mm. you know that it's such an emotional roller coaster when you see the highs and the lows and then you see how they're going after the breakup or during mm. and how the role that friends and family can play in their perceptions of things what was it like getting down to those nitty-gritty details with them and them divulging those details uh it it was pretty intense and I think I saw myself as like a living journal because I'm not a, a therapist and that's not, I don't have qualifications in that. But what I could be was a sounding board that was genuinely interested. And I think for each of them, there was something quite cathartic in that experience. So I asked, there were definitely moments where I knew I had to speak to them and ask them really uncomfortable questions, whether that was about a particular moment that I knew was really painful or their sex life or something just messy that I could see them skirting around and I would go I don't I don't even want to ask because it felt like a friendship by that point as well but I knew I had to and that was interesting I definitely learned a lot as an interviewer and as as I wrote I saw where the gaps were and where I needed more clarification so that was an ongoing process throughout. And even though they'll obviously remain anonymous their names are changed were any of them a bit hesitant to give up some of those details to more maybe they have not fully processed it but maybe realized how much of an impact it's had mm. until you started speaking to them and that was part of it is that I didn't want people who had fully processed it so it's a good point that at any stage I was like well they might wake up and be over it tomorrow in which case they might be like I don't want to talk about this anymore this is really boring to me but it's a testament to 
the thesis I had, which was that they don't, they were not going to get over it overnight. And so it was this really long process of getting into the the nitty gritty, I suppose. And they, they told me more than I ever expected them to, which, yeah, that was definitely a, a surprise is that they didn't want to stop talking because everyone else in their world had stopped listening, I think. And to have this one person who did want to know and found their stories interesting and meaningful, I think was a really good outlet for them. And do you mean by stop listening in terms of it was something in the past? Yeah, and maybe their friends and family gave them two weeks to talk about it. There was one subject in the book who has never told anyone her story. So to have one person to talk to was just, I think, very sort of therapeutic to her and it was a very emotional experience. She was incredible. But the other two, time had passed a little bit and they would have felt like it was weird if they were still talking about it. But to have someone digging around meant that they could probably process things out loud and they were asked questions they hadn't considered yet, which was hopefully useful to the healing process. But yeah, that was ongoing. When you would create drafts to be sent off, were they in that process? Did you keep them up to date as it was going along? Because it's their stories, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And a lot of journalists, and I know at work, often if you interview someone for a story, you often don't send it to them before, not because you're trying to hide anything, but because if anyone presents you with your own story, you're going to want to change things. And that then makes it really difficult for a journalist to be objective and to do their job properly if it then becomes this shared work. And if you say to someone, oh, do you want me to change? anything they're always going to come up with 10 things so I've always been trained that you make sure their quotes are correct and all that kind of thing but they don't get final approval but in this it was so important to me that they got final approval so I wrote up each of their stories separately and then before I submitted the manuscript I had them each read it and basically say if they were okay with it if they wanted things to change mostly they had things they wanted to add that they thought this I I forgot about this part or there's an email from that time that I forgot to send you which was great but it meant so much to me that they were happy because this is their story it's going out into the world they'd been so generous with me and my intention wasn't to malign them or to make them look bad it was all about their truth and the only person who could sign off on that was always going to be them and I guess also with that producing a manuscript is very different to producing a story because I suppose the deadline is much longer it's more in the future but at the same time that could creep up with you in an instant I could imagine that that time would have gone yes within an instant how long did that process of interviewing them take was it a lot of back and forth yeah it was it was throughout the whole nine months so I started with Anna and I'm someone who could definitely get stuck in the research phase for the whole time so I knew I had to sit down and write and that only then would I know what I really needed so I started with Anna and then I did Patrick and then Claire was the last one but it wasn't like interview and then write up their story it was very collaborative I suppose as I went and even text messages, email, um, meeting up, lots of different ways to to get their story. And it might be a Saturday night message that's like, hey, can you send me a photo of this? Or can I just double check what your title was at that job you used to have or something? And they were always so, so receptive. And how did they react when they were reading the manuscripts? They were lovely, amazing. Generally, there were a few names that they wanted changed because as I had gone and made up pseudonyms for people in their lives, 
I accidentally got those names right sometimes. <laughs> so it was, you know, James. They'd go, James's name is James. Like, I need to change that. So there were a few funny things like that. But otherwise, they were just great and so encouraging. And only now are they reading the other stories because they didn't know what other stories I was working with and seeing it kind of come together as a as a book. Did you get much of an opportunity to meet up with them? Only one who was local. The other two I couldn't because of COVID and borders and all that kind of stuff. But it's so weird because I feel like I know them so, so well. And that period was a particularly reflective time for a lot of people, I think. We had more time to think. They were separated from loved ones, so it probably brought out a different side to a lot of people that I could never have anticipated. That's it for part one of this great conversation with Jesse Stevens. That's right, this is a two-parter, so make sure you join us for part two. Jesse's new book, Heartsick, is out now from Pan Macmillan Publishing. Today, the show was uh, presented. The interview was recorded and produced by Brianna Devlin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in the podcast app. There's a new Great Conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.